Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another Ion Travel Podcast. This week, I'm in Colorado, Utah, and California to talk about airlines, cities, and wine, and not necessarily in that order. 
First up, it's an iconic and historic winery, Bolio Vineyards in California, more than 120 years old, emblematic of what's great about the wine industry. I sat down with Trevor Durling, its master winemaker, for an extended discussion of wine, travel, and maintaining tradition. Then it's off to Denver for a conversation with Mayor Michael Hancock with an update on the Mile High City, COVID, travel, and tourism. And finally, I check in with Barry Biffle, CEO of Frontier Airlines, and Frontier's rapid route expansion in the era of COVID, duct taping unruly passengers, and how low fare carriers are, at least for the moment, leading the way back for the airline business. First up, a little winemaking talk with Trevor Durling, the master winemaker for BV in Napa, California. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Let me set up the story for you here. You know, California has dozens and dozens and dozens of wineries, both in the north and the south. And of course, many of them legendary. One of them quite legendary. It's over 117 years old. And it's always interesting to get the philosophy of the people behind the wine. It's not just looking at a bottle and understanding the vintage. It's so much more than that. And when you travel, that's what I try to do. I try to have conversations with the people who are responsible for the process that gets you the product. Because if you don't understand the process, how are you ever going to respect or value the product? And joining me now is a very interesting guy because he's the only the fifth chief winemaker of Bolio Vineyard, BV, in the history of the winery. And he came from a rather unusual footsteps, going back from a guy who wanted to be an officer in the U.S. Air Force. And the next thing you know, he's making wine. I'll let him fill in the blanks. <laughs> His name is Trevor Durlin. Hey, Trevor Durling. Hey, Peter. How are you? Thanks for having me this afternoon. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting to me that I spent a lot of time about 30 years ago in Napa and where you are in Northern California and spending time with the winemakers of Michael Gergich and Stag's Leap, just learning so much because everybody who I talked to had a story to tell about the land, about the history, about their philosophy. But first of all, what I'd love to talk to you about is how you did this. How you became a winemaker? I mean, did you just you know get up one day and say, I don't want to join the Air Force. I'm going to go chase grapes? Well, I'll back up a little bit there. And, and you know, the, the connection with the Air Force is actually that my grandfather, who uh, actually j- just passed away this last year at the age of 95 years old, was a, 30, a little bit over 30-year veteran of the U.S. Air Force. He was actually part of the flyover opening of the uh, Academy in Colorado Springs. And, you know, he was my, my hero growing up. I mean, he was, uh, we were very, very close, taught me many, many, many things in life. And of course, I wanted to be just like him. So this was something I had thought about, you know, from a very, very young age. But I was born and raised in Sonoma. So I I was lucky enough to be surrounded by beautiful vineyards for pretty much my entire childhood. I don't have any family that are directly involved in the wine industry, actually. My my father, ironically, spent much of his career in the beer business. And we always say that it takes a lot of good beer to make a great wine, which is very, very true. Don't ever trust a winemaker who doesn't enjoy a a frosty brew. (laughs) But you know, I 
grew up in a family that wine was always present at the dinner table from a very young age. So I learned about it early on. It was just a big part of my upbringing. Now, fast forward to post high school, I, I decided to enroll at UC Davis and originally was going into the ROTC program to, to actually pursue my uh, kind of early dream. Of- yeah, but you know something, Trevor, anybody who enrolls at UC Davis, you know what's going to happen. It's enology. You're going to do wine. It's a, that's it. You're, you're going to get a bike. You're going to get a bicycle and you're going to, uh, did you get a bicycle? Come on, the truth. I certainly did. It is there a, you go. Bicycle friendly campus. <laughs> and, th- and then it's enology all the way. And that's what happened, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, the campus, well, that's great. I mean, I, you know, it's, it, I, I enrolled there as an undergrad and my original uh, direction, of course, was to do, to do the ROTC program and pursue kind of a, a different degree entirely. And actually my first year of undergrad there, I enrolled in a introductory winemaking course just out of personal interest because it was something that, you know, had been a big part of my childhood. But up until this point, not really something that I had considered as a route professional. I got the hook right away. Right when I enrolled in this course, I started learning a little bit more about the global history around wine, a little bit here and there about how it's made, which you know I, I, I knew a bit about before, but this really helped to connect a lot of the dots for me. And I realized that I just had this tremendous affinity towards the subject. And I think it's you know really that combination of art and science and agriculture, the fact that you're kind of at the mercy of mother nature each season. And at the end of the day, you're crafting this product that is just beautiful and it's surrounded around positive things, around food, loved ones, all, all, all of those wonderful things in life. Uh, and so it really resonated with me. And, and, and right after that course, that first summer after my first year at Davis, I actually got a job as a winemaking intern at a, a winery out in Russian River Valley. And I wanted to see if, you know, putting these ideas to practice would really continue my interest in this field. And that is when I would say I completely got the hook and changed the course of my uh, of my schooling and then ultimately my career from that point forward. And if I read my, my bios correctly, your first experience really was sparkling wines. Well, actually, prior to that, I had a short stint at Sonoma Contreras Vineyard. So Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I worked for the great Terry Adams, who made wine there for many, many, many years. And my job was was really spending a lot of time in the vineyard, sampling grapes, you know, bringing them into the laboratory, running analysis on them, and then going out in the cellar and, and joining the crew and physically making wine. And so this was a very short stint. It was only about six weeks because I needed to get back to Davis for fall quarter. But that following vintage, that is when I started learning how to make sparkling wine. So I spent the next two vintages producing sparkling wine in Carneros at Gloria Ferrer Vineyards, uh, which taught me a heck of a lot. And, and you know, the, the other wonderful thing about that is the fact that it's a relatively early harvest season. So uh, I was able to complete two full vintages, you know, each of those uh, each of those summers before going back uh, to school in the fall. So that was a really, really nice way to, to, to truly understand the whole process of, of harvesting and winemaking. And that led you to where you are today. That led me to where where I am today. And so uh, after graduating at Davis, I I did that following um, stint there at Gloria Ferrer. And then I joined a small high-end Cabernet producer in Sonoma Valley on on the Sonoma side of Mount Beter. And this is where I fell in love with Cabernet Sauvignon in particular as a varietal. And so spent a number of theirs making a number of years there making wines before uh, coming over to Rutherford in 2009, where ironically I did a... um, uh, just under a year here at Beaulieu and got to work with two of my former, uh, two of my predecessors, uh, which is an amazing experience. And then I joined the winemaking team over at Hewitt uh, and Provenance Vineyards and have been making Cabernet and Rutherford ever since. So what you're saying is you can't hold the job. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, those were all relatively, you know, I spent about six years at Moon Mountain 
uh, over there in Sonoma Valley. And then we were part of the same parent company at the time that owned Beaulieu and Provenance. And so uh, it was a known temporary stint that I that I had spent that harvest here in Oneida at, at Beaulieu uh, on my way over to, to making wine at Provenance Vineyard. So I stayed within the family um, and then, you know, spent probably six years there before joining here in uh, early 2017. You know, I, I have an admission to make, and that is when I first came to California, to Northern California, to San Francisco, I was a correspondent for Newsweek magazine, and I didn't know anything about wine. And there was a restaurateur in San Francisco who sort of took me under her wing and uh, because the restaurant just happened to be in the same building as our bureau. And I would go in there and she'd say to me, this is what you're having for dinner tonight. And that was my first introduction to BV. That was my first introduction to Cabernet Sauvignon from BV, from Beaulieu. Oh, that's so cool. I'd yeah. love to hear that. Yeah, in fact, in fact, that was what she stocked. I mean, I didn't. I have to tell you, in all honesty, I didn't have much of a choice. <laughs> that's what she. That's what she gave me. And, <laughs> and but I mean, that's how I developed it. I mean, it became of that. So it's it's ironic that I'm talking to you today about it. Well, it's so great, and you know, it, interestingly, I mean, while while we're talking a little bit about some of the past history and everything, when when I was growing up, actually, well, I I was uh, let's see, going to school at Davis at the time. You know, I had known of Beaulieu for obviously for a long time, being from, you know, nearby. My parents were wine club members for many, many years. So I was introduced to these wines pretty early on. Um, but after I had enrolled in the viticulture and enology program at Davis, there was one particular incident where I was invited to a tasting um, by a longtime family friend. And this is somebody who, you know, has a monthly tasting group and they'll they'll pick a vintage in an appellation from anywhere around the world. And everybody, probably, you know, between 12 and 15 people will show up each month. Um, they'll br- everybody brings a bottle. They blind the bottles so that you're, you're actually tasting blind. And then, you know, they go through in a very methodical manner and rank them and have this long conversation about all the wines. It was very, very interesting. I got invited to one uh, where the theme was the 1968 vintage of Napa Valley. And it didn't necessarily have to be Cabernet Sauvignon. It could be any varietal, but it had to be from the Napa Valley and it had to be vintage 1968. And so I must have done something wonderful in my previous life to get invited to this because I think I was about <laughs> 19 years old at the time. And I was uh, amongst, you know, people who had spent most of their lives collecting and enjoying these wonderful wines. And so to have a seat at this table was phenomenal. But this was the first time that I was able to taste the 1968 vintage of George de la Tour Private Reserve. Uh, and we had it against... Uh, an Inglenook Cabernet from that same vintage. We had a Charbonneau from Inglenook uh, from that same year. Uh, Heights Martha's Vineyard, just these legendary wines from a fabled vintage in the Napa Valley. And the one wine that stood out to me and absolutely blew me away and was really the first wine where I looked at the bottle and said, I want to make something just like that. I cannot believe a wine can taste this good uh, was that 1968 George de la Tour Private Reserve. And so you know, to now have the honor and the pleasure to have come full circle and to get to lead that very winery that, that you know, left that impression on me all of those years ago is, is truly a magical thing for a winemaker. Trevor, you know, it's, it's interesting to see, the, any winemaker will tell you there are good vintages and bad vintages and, and great weather and bad weather and, it was, you know, an early harvest, a late harvest. But the one thing that's consistent, at least in the last, what, 10 years, is what you don't know. And you know, climate change, global warming. How has that changed the way you approach wine? How has that changed your philosophy? And 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 more importantly, how has that changed your technical, 
your technique, the, the way you actually make the wine? You know, it really comes down to the intelligent use of water out there in the vineyards. And so we're very lucky that in California, we are able to irrigate. And most of our vineyards here at Beaulieu, you know, so we own and farm about 1,100 acres throughout the valley. Uh, and most of them are valley floors. So luckily we have, uh, you know, pretty deep wells. And we're usually, we're still looking okay with water in terms of water for the, for the most part. Um, but there have been so many advances in irrigation technology as of late to where, you know, we can really target specific rows within vineyard blocks and even specific vines. And so, you know, if you think about a whole vineyard and you have, you know, let's say it's 100 acres or so, there's going to be a lot of difference, even in that small area, a lot of um, fluctuation in terms of soil uh, profile. So there are certain areas that will require a little bit more water than others. Uh, and so we use a lot of technology to be able to target specific areas that need more water and not waste it on the spots that do not need. Well, let me ask you, let me, yeah, let me, let, let me ask you this because I have an admission to make. I am the brown thumb of the universe. If I go to a nursery, if I go to a nursery and buy a, a flowering plant in the car on the ride home, the plant says, why prolong this? I think I should just die right now. <laughs> and, and, and so how I'm fascinated with, 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 with your technology when you say you could actually target an individual tree. You can target an individual row of, 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 of grapes. How do you how do you do that? Well, so we, I mean, luckily there, there are people, um, you know, we have a, a wonderful technical viticulture department. And so this is, these are people that just, that spend their entire careers, you know, researching, um, you know, how to, to best tend to vineyards. And, you know, we have certain parts of the vineyards where we are looking at the sap flow, you know, so we actually have meters that are uh, attached to different vines that, you know, we can actually read the flow of water and nutrients within that vine to be able to accurately predict that, hey, this one's under water stress and it's going to need a little bit of water before we can actually physically see it. So that's that's huge. Uh, but also, you know, we use technology where we will actually fly planes and drones over the vineyards that will give us readings of vigor. So I can look at a map of a whole vineyard and I can dial in which area within a particular vineyard block is the most stressed or has the most vigorous growth. And so, of course, we want to focus the irrigation on the areas that are the most stressy, right, that have probably the best drainage in the soil. And so all we do from that point is we go in and make sure that we've got the right amount of emitters. So we use drip irrigation um, and we make sure that those vines get uh, enough water where we may only have one emitter on the, the bookends that don't actually need it, right? So it's all about understanding your soil profile and having the right amount of uh, drip in the right amount of water actually getting to the specific vines. And then from there, we can isolate, of course, different irrigation lines and only, you know, turn a small number of them on at any given time to, of course, you know, not waste water, but also your, your quality level goes through the roof there. Because as a winemaker, what you really want to see within a vineyard block is uniform ripening. And by dialing in your irrigation practices to only hit the specific vines that actually need it, you're going to create a situation where you have much more consistent vegetative growth, a better fruit set, and ultimately all of the uh, the grape clusters will ripen at the same time. So you so you really have an early warning system. Exactly. So it's a number of different things put together. But yes, when it comes to uh, the sap flow monitoring and, and also just understanding you know the flow of water and nutrients throughout the vine, that gives us an early heads up uh, in terms of when to irrigate, where it will be much more efficient than waiting until you can physically see the dehydration in the vine with your eyes. So what you're telling me, Trevor, if, if you mess up, it's just your fault. 
Basically, yes. <laughs> we spend our careers trying to not mess up what Mother Nature has given us. But, you know, in a world of constant disruption, in the last two or three years, I think you'd agree, we're living in a very disruptive world. I mean, what are the other challenges that you're facing where you don't have as much control? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, you have a global pandemic and people's uh, <laughs> uh, wine choices can differ during that time. There's different economic challenges that will change what people drink and what they don't drink and that kind of thing. But the good news is for us is that, you know, people tend to enjoy wines no matter what is going on in the world um, <laughs> to, to some extent. So, uh, you know, we will see, of course, changes in, in behaviors in terms of people's consumption and that kind of thing. But you know, being so fortunate to be one of the original Napa Valley wineries and having so much amazing vineyard land um, within our portfolio is, is really helpful to get us through that. Um, but I would say, you know, also shifting the mindset to get these wines a little bit more available internationally, because with globalization that's been going on, you know, I mean, I think it's really important for uh, producers such as us who have so much vineyard and so much, so much history uh, to get the wines a little bit more uh, outside of it, available outside of the United States, which we've always had a presence uh, for a long time. But I think we're focusing really heavily on that as well. Um, and, and, and also, you know, just kind of rejuvenating and, and resurrecting a lot of these wonderful stories of history that come from this place that haven't been told in, in a number of decades. And so that's that's a really fun project and a, run, a really fun chapter to write. Now, you know, let's go back 15 months, Trevor. We all know there was a run on toilet paper um, and people were going crazy. They were hoarding. Was there a run on wine? Yes, there was. And it, it's a really interesting thing because we weren't sure, I would say, as an industry and, and myself individually, I wasn't sure exactly how people were going to react in terms of wine consumption during this time. Uh, and it turns out people started actually buying a lot more wines, certainly online. Uh, but still buying a heck of a lot of wine and bringing it home and, and, and enjoying them uh, during the pandemic. And so, you know, sales have been, as far as I concern, I'm concerned, uh, pretty strong throughout the whole period. Um, there may have been a little bit of shifting in behaviors in terms of, you know, spending a little bit less per bottle or, what, or, or whatever, you know, depending on the, the, the area and the, and the uh, category of consumer we're talking about here. Um, but definitely sales remain strong the whole time. And we did see uh, a number of times uh, during the early days of the pandemic where there'd just be this surge in wine purchases. And I think it was people kind of stocking up and, and hunkering <laughs> down and still enjoying the good things in life. Well, all symbolism intentional here. I, I liken it to what I call a last supper mentality. Uh, people saying, you know what? I have no idea what's going to happen, but I'm going to go out in style. I am literally going to experience this now because I may not get to experience it later. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And now let's talk about some, let's like fine tune this. We know that wine sales are up, but what particular wines were being sold that might surprise you? Oh man. Well, I think uh, in, in, in my mind, you know, there was a lot more of the top end of the spectrum that was still selling that, that surprised me. I, I was expecting to see a little bit more of a downshift in, in people's spend, you know, per bottle. Um, but actually in the luxury space, you know, uh, people have, have, have continued to purchase, you know, fine wines. I think the only, you know, probably the major area where that part of the, the industry got hit was, of course, the on-premise at restaurants and bars and things like that that had, that had shut down. Um, but people were actually purchasing much more expensive wines continuously than I probably would have expected. Um, I think it was also an interesting thing where people started 
you know, maybe exploring and maybe they just found themselves with a little bit more time to start to explore uh, other wines from from different regions that they weren't, you know, as used to, to enjoying wines from. Um, and this has been a case for us, you know, outside of the U.S. as well. I think uh, the growth and popularity of Bolu wines outside of the U.S. has been, you know, pretty fantastic over the last couple of years. And any real surprises into a particular type or brand of, 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 of wine in terms of here's one that we made that we love that nobody ever bought before, but all of a sudden during the pandemic, they couldn't get enough of it? Well, I'd say, you know, I, I, there, there are. And I don't know that this is as much of a function of the pandemic as it just is um, a function of, you know, pe- people's curiosity to try different varietals. But for example, you know, this is a pretty small production wine we're talking about here, but we started bottling a uh, 100% Toriga Nacional, uh, from one of our vineyards here in the Napa Valley. And this is, of course, a Portuguese varietal. It's heavily used in port production, but also there's a lot of wonderful table wines made from it, but very, very uncommon uh, in the Napa Valley to be grown. And so we're, we're one of the very few producers to have any, any of this planted. Uh, and it's a phenomenal table wine and something that I have been thinking about doing for a number of years now. And so we just happened to pull the trigger right at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, and upon its release, it just became... Uh, absurdly popular. And so again, small production, you can only purchase it here at the winery or through our website, uh, www.bvwines.com. But we... Was that, was, that a, was that a shameless plug? That was a shameless plug. Okay, just double check. Okay. Well, just because I feel, you know, people will hear this and say, oh, that's really interesting. I've not had a Toriga from the Napa Valley before. And so I just want to make sure we all know where to get it. <laughs> but, it's a, <laughs> but it's a really, really cool wine. And I think we're seeing those behaviors from consumers these days as people are more um, open to trying, you know, of course, different producers and and whatnot, but also different varietals that they may not be as familiar with. And so that one on a very small scale has been a really pleasant, uh, surprise. And I think, you know, the, the wine tastes wonderful and it's, it's, it's really, uh, an interesting varietal all around. Of course, the one thing that is key to everything other than location, 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 it's the amount of real estate you have to work with. And given the, the acreage that you have, are there any attempts at all to increase that? You know, right now, I think we're, we're at a pretty good state because we're, we're really in balance in terms of, you know, how many grapes we've got and, you know, how many vine- vines we have in the ground to what our actual production is. And we're holding pretty strong. I think we're in a really healthy position. You know, 1,100 acres is pretty significant when it comes to the Napa Valley. Um, you know, when you think about Napa and compare it to other, you know, well-known regions around the world, it's, it's a fraction of the size. I mean, much smaller than Bordeaux, for example, being only, what, 30 miles north to south and about five miles wide at its widest point. So we're, we're in a mode now where we're investing very heavily in our vineyards that we've owned and farmed for many years. And so there's no immediate, you know, plans to expand the acreage per se, um, but really, it's coming down to, uh, you know, properly planning around necessary replanting of various blocks that we already have in our vineyards, uh, really dialing in and honing in on the proper, uh, not only varietal for a specific location, but the right rootstock, the right clone of that varietal, uh, and making sure that, you know, the infrastructure out in the vineyard, like irrigation, for example, is set up for success going forward. And so we're, we're investing very heavily viticulturally. Uh, within the footprint that we already have. You know, when I think of all the vineyards in Napa, I think of your topography. I think of, of the fires that have been happening in California. Uh, and you know, that's obviously a continuing challenge for all of you. How do you maintain the legacy of the vineyards? How do you maintain the story? And what story do you really want to continue to tell? Well, I think, you know, philosophically, our our winemaking style has really 
been rock solid from day one here at Bullu and hasn't hasn't changed very much in terms of what our over our overall you know philosophical standpoint is, which is to really best express the beautiful terroir, you know, the place, the vineyards themselves that we're so fortunate to to have. Um, and so, of our 1,100 acres, you know, roughly half of them are located here in the Rutherford district, uh, primarily on the western Rutherford bench, which is you know right in the middle of the Napa Valley, and this is absolute Cabernet country. So I think one of the biggest things that I really like to highlight in our wines here, and this goes back to when Andre Teleschef was making all the wines starting in the you know, late 1930s, is that we want to best express this notion of Rutherford dust that we possibly can. And this is something that comes um, and is, is very, very distinctive Cabernet in particular grown in the Rutherford district. It's more of a textural thing to me. So it's kind of this cocoa powder texture and flavor profile that you get uh, on the mid palate in particular melts into the finish. There is an aroma associated with it and it's very distinctive Cabernet grown in Rutherford. One of the most refined tannin um, textures that you'll find from the Napa Valley. So, you know, big, burly, strong tannins that you know you're gonna be able to lay down the wine and age for many, many decades, but also rounded and, and um, saturated on the mid palate. So it really allows you to enjoy the wines in their youth as well. And so I think in my view, um, you know, best expressing that sense of place is the most important thing when it comes to winemaking. And we are absolutely in Cabernet territory here in Rutherford. You are. Now you talk about Rutherford dust. You've talked about the science. You've talked about the innovation. What about the art? Oh yes. Well, the art is the most important thing. And I always say that winemaking is this, this beautiful combination of art and science. Um, and really, you know, the science that we use is to uh, back up a lot of our decisions that we're making, but I do not make a single winemaking decision when we're blending, for example, uh, based on numbers whatsoever. It is entirely based on palate. Uh, and very, very importantly there, you know, I have a brilliant winemaking team that works alongside me so that it's not just one particular palate making all of the blending decisions. So, uh, for example, when it comes to a wine, let's take George de la Tour Private Reserve, which is our flagship, you know, there's probably a hundred different barrel lots that are going into creating this one wine. So there's a lot of uh, trial and error when it comes to blending trials on the bench top. And I've got a team of about uh, four different people, you know, three winemakers and oftentimes we'll, we'll include others uh, from our team as well to come in and to taste blind when we're going through the blending process. Uh, and you do this in repetition day after day after day to make sure that we are assembling the best possible blend. And so it is a lot of trial and error. You might have a prediction in terms of what you think is going to work based on you know, the, the chemistry that we've got, for example, in various lots and that kind of thing, but it all comes down to palate and how it tastes. And that is the beautiful thing about wine. Each vintage is different. We are always at the mercy of mother nature and there are never two vintages that are identical. So you, you have to be flexible when it comes to that. And there are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. Well, let me, let me ask you this question then. Uh, you've got a harvest coming up, I'm assuming. Yep. And my question about that is, I'm, I'm a big fan of participatory travel. So if, if I showed up at the harvest, would you put some knee pads on me and give me a basket? I certainly will, Peter. I will take you up on that. And not only that, but we'll bring you here in, into the winery and um, I'll have you help, have you help with uh, some of the sorting that we do on the optical line. So it's pretty interesting to watch. And also we can always use an extra hand during harvest. It's a very, very busy time of year, as I, as I know you're aware. 
So, so the sorting is not going to be a, a repeat of the old episode of Lucille Ball. You know, it's 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 there are similarities. The technology has come a long way, uh, but it definitely has similarities between that. You know, <laughs> from that scene there. Well, what hasn't changed? Tell me the one thing that hasn't changed. The one thing that hasn't changed is the land that we farm, um, and also, like I said, I think our, our winemaking philosophy to best express the terroir. Uh, that we possibly can. And so one of the great pleasures of my career is getting to work with these vineyards, you know, most of which we have owned for over 100, you know, 110 years at this point. Um, the original planting, of course, at Bullion One being purchased in 1900. So now what, 121 years. And so the fact that we have this kind of core foundation of that place that exists in all back vintages of Bullion Wines and still exists today is just absolutely incredible. And, you know, you, you taste different back vintages and you get to see, you know, changes in uh, viticulture practices, technology, weather patterns, et cetera. But there is this central core of consistency, which is our terroir. And so that will never change because a truly great wine is expressive of its place. And we're in a very unique, uh, you know, spot on the planet. And that's also your, it's, it's your legacy, but it's also your challenge. It is. Absolutely. It's a constant challenge, you know, and that's good job security for me. <laughs> yes, I know. Where, where's Trevor? He's protecting the Torah. Leave exactly, him alone. yes. <laughs> okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. My thanks to Trevor. It's been a wild and chaotic summer as travel came roaring back. Airlines doubling and tripling down on dozens of new routes and a growing number of unruly and disruptive passengers along the way with a few very well-known violent incidents. Barry Biffle knows a thing or two about the airline business. He's worked at U.S. Air, at Spirit, and now he's the CEO of Frontier. I sat down with him at his Denver headquarters for an update on everything. If I'm coming to Colorado, I need to talk to the, uh, the hometown airline of Colorado, and that's Frontier Airlines, and the CEO, Barry Biffle. Nice to see you, sir. Good to see you, Peter. Thanks for having us. Uh, Talking about the last 18 months, we could we could spend days on it, but but I guess I want to start with what are the lessons that you've learned in the in the in the pandemic about not only how to operate the airline but how to operate it well, um, and then of course I remember you guys were the first, if not the only U.S. airline I remember that was taking temperature when when the pandemic happened. Well, look, that, that, that's correct, and, and we took this very serious from the beginning. We're in a business of safety, and uh, we've continued to, to focus on that. Even recently, uh, with the Delta variant uh, being a concern, um, we are continuing to evolve in, in terms of our understanding. I think, you know, if you go back to when you and I first spoke, not too long after this all started, um, I don't think we knew, and I don't think the general public and even the CDC knew what we know now, which is air travel is one of the safest things you can do, uh, especially when they're masked and, and with 
filtration. Uh, but this Delta variant has created challenges, and I think when you look uh, at where we are today uh, from a vaccination perspective, I think there's there's a lot of issues still with, with the unvaccinated. And so until we get through that, I think you're going to see continued more testing and a lot of your protocols continue to go on and impact people's travel. And of course, the recent announcement that the September 13th decision date has now been extended. Mask mandate's going to be continued till January 18th of 2022. I'm going to guess you weren't surprised by that. No, not at all. Not at all. Because, because I mean, as long as you still have the variant, still as long as you have people not vaccinated. That's right. No, That's just, right. Look, if we can get everybody vaccinated, get the cases down, get the hospitalizations down, I think then uh, maybe we could we could look at relaxing measures. But until you have that happen, uh, you're going to have to keep uh, things going. And so and I think we as a society, no one wants to turn back. We're not going back to lockdowns uh, and so forth. Uh, so you're going to have to leave the measures in. And I think honestly, I mean, I just got off plane last night. The masks are not a big deal. It's not a, I mean, you know, if we've done this long enough now. I know some people are still annoyed, uh, but it's, it's, it's a small price to pay uh, for, to be able to move around the country. You know, the Minister of Transport of, of Canada or about 10 days ago announced a new ruling that if you want to get on an airplane in Canada, you have to be vaccinated. Yeah, I, I think you're going to see that more and more. I wouldn't be surprised if you see it worldwide. Does that mean that Frontier is considering that? So um, we have been talking to some other carriers and uh, our, our NACA organization uh, in Washington. We understand it to be a, a federal decision, and so, uh, but we would, we would absolutely support it. Because so many people in the private sector are already doing such a thing. Uh, you have 80 restaurants in Seattle saying, if you want to eat here, inside or out, you got to show proof of vaccination. When Broadway reopens, you can't go to the theater without showing proof of vaccination. I would assume a natural extension of that would be, I can't get on a Frontier Airlines plane without showing proof. Yeah, so I don't have the ability to enforce that. It's a federal federal right. issue. However, we can do it with our employees. And we've announced by October 1st, um, all of our employees will either be vaccinated or they'll have to test negative routinely. And that's, you're the second airline to do that, right? United was the first. Yeah, United actually is, is, is full mandate, so there is no exception. Um, so they don't have a texting option. Uh, but uh, our view is, is, look, we take safety serious. And um, it seems like there's some other airlines, and I know a lot of other travel companies that are signaling that. I just read a hotel chain this morning that's going to be requiring it starting in September. So I think this is going to be the, the passport to, to travel is going to be a vaccine. Of course, the optics of seeing somebody duct taped on a plane uh, not the prettiest thing you've seen. No, no, and 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 as disappointing as that 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 was, I think that the silver lining here is that uh, it tells people that are going to misbehave on airplanes, um, don't do it. This you know, is gonna, you're going to get taped up, and you're you're probably going to be arrested. You know, we've seen what over 3,800 incidents reported by the FAA of unruly or disruptive passengers. In many cases, violent. Uh, an overwhelming number of cases, alcohol. Right? Gee, what? I, what would you, oh, alcohol and altitude. What could go wrong? Yeah, I don't know if it's specifically alcohol that, that, that causes all of these. Uh, look, you, you've seen a lot of things. I mean, going back to the riots and everything last summer, um, you know, you've seen kind of, I, I guess, manifested itself in a, in a lot of strange behaviors. Uh, but I want to put the 3,800 in context. You know, we, we carry 80,000 passengers a day. And every now and then we have an incident. Um, but, but if you're in a town of 80,000 people, the police are going to get called pretty often. 
right? We don't have to call the police every day. So I, 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 want, I want people to understand it seems like a lot, but um, the sky is not just full of one big bar fight. So these are, these are is measures. That your, is that your branding message now? <laughs> <laughs> that it's not a big bar fight. Um, but I think that's the perception. You know, I was, I was just watching this morning. It, it was on the news again this morning. They're talking about these air rage incidents and so forth. Uh, but the truth is, I just want everybody to understand, out of several million people traveling every day, these incidents are actually very rare on a, on a per passenger and per flight basis. And but going forward, you know, United Airlines just sent an email to their own flight attendants saying, uh, from now on, please don't use duct tape. <laughs> and, and you have other means. The, yes, look, there's, there's restraint devices and so forth. Um, but I think I, I'm not going to second guess our employees when they're in a situation where they had a flight attendant, a fellow flight attendant, two fellow flight attendants sexually assaulted, and two of them uh, assaulted from a, from a physical perspective, and what it took to actually you know, get someone restrained. So, look, the tape is there for a reason because that may be what you can use. Um, and, and, look, these are not police officers. They're not bouncers. All right. These, these are people who are supposed to behave on airplanes. And yet flight attendants are now taking self-defense training. Yes, we've always had we've always had, uh, you know, self-defense training as part of the curriculum, as part of their their, their training process. Um, I think they're maybe paying a little more attention because of some of these. Um, but the truth is, I think, look, I think the federal government, thank goodness they're coming in, finding these people. And if that's how you want to behave, then you need to drive or walk. But being on a plane is not the place to be. I got you. Uh, speaking about being on the plane, you know, if you take a look at an airline like Southwest prior to the pandemic, in any given year, they might add one new route. That's, that was their tradition, right? Other airlines, maybe five or six. But in the wake of the pandemic, you guys doubled and tripled down. Oh, we've, we've continued to grow. Absolutely. And we're going to continue to grow this this winter. And in fact, we're we're expanding considerably into the into the Caribbean and Central America, and really excited about the growth. And we also just added Anchorage, Anchorage, Alaska, Kalispell, Montana, which I actually just got back from that flight yesterday. Um, so no, we continue to to expand our footprint. But we're, but we're talking double digits in terms of number of routes. So so yeah, so we're we'll launch uh, not quite a hundred new routes uh, over over a one year period. So. Yeah, we're, we're growing at about 20%, and we'll add 20% more destinations. All right, stupid question. Is that sustainable? Well, obviously, we'll eventually run out of airports, right, if we keep adding. But <laughs> No, I wasn't asking it in that way. I'm asking what running out of airplanes or running out of people to staff them. Because you see what's happened with, with other airlines where they couldn't field crews. Oh, I've seen some staffing challenges. And, and look, we, we, we were well aware that this was going to be an issue I think going back to last year. Um, we knew that when we ramped back up that we would have to hire people on the ground, uh, pilots, flight attendants, and so forth. And so we were spending significant amount of time last winter getting ready for this spring. And, you know, we did really, really well. We were back at about 70, 80% back in March, April, ramped it up to, you know, 90, 95% of former utilization in June. And we were actually doing well, except for all the other airlines, all the other, you know, call it hotels and everyone, all seemed to want to hire everybody in May, June. And that's where the pinch really started to happen. So it, it hit us a little bit in some places, uh, but not like it did some of these others, just simply because we had been trying to build up our training uh, for months in advance. You know, of course, you, you know, when, when the pandemic starts to subside a little bit, people won't go travel again. You know, you're starting to take planes out of parking position. You can't just go kick the tires and turn on the ignition. You got to get pilots back in recurrent training. You got to, you have to do that, right? That's right. And if you add the number of pilots that needed it, times the number of days they had to be in the simulator in the classroom, 
times the number of flights they had to take. That explains why you're seeing hundreds of canceled flights on some other airlines. How did you deal with that? So, so we actually, we, we, look, we took aircraft and we actually had some in the desert, but I'll tell you that we actually brought them all back by, by this spring. And so we don't have any parked like, like some airlines do. Uh, as far as our crew members, um, we allowed some leaves and we, we had some volunteer leave programs out there, but we, we tried to keep them as current as possible. And so that that way we didn't have this long learning curve when we got back in the air. Uh, and, and, and like I said earlier, we, we ramped back up to about 70% and held that for a couple of months to get kind of the muscle memory back and so forth. And so we, we feel really good about it. And now you're at the point where the majority of our crew have been back flying over six months. When you first came to this airline, did you ever think you'd be flying this many routes? Uh, Honestly. Well, well, that was our plan, Peter. <laughs> It's just the question is, would somebody believe me seven years ago, you know, but uh, no, we, we've been really successful with the growth of the company. We're really proud of everything that our team has accomplished. Uh, but, you know, I, I, you're now doing international stuff. That was also part of the plan. Sure. Sure. Look, I mean, well, when we first came here, you know, seven years ago, uh, domestic yields has actually gotten as good or better than the near international. In a given day, I mean, you got, I'm sure you have guys in a darkened room somewhere trying to figure out what are we going to get for this fare and, and, and how we can justify it based on all these other factors that change by the minute. So how are you doing that in the wake of a, of a pandemic? Well, look, you got to have demand to be able to yield management, right? You starts with getting full. Fares go up once people get full. And so what's happened is, you know, there was people talk about the pent-up demand, but there's pent-up capacity too. And so the airlines have continued to chase this. And so airfares have stayed relatively reasonable uh, for consumers. They, they were just starting to get back to normal levels uh, from a leisure perspective right when the Delta variant hit a few weeks ago. Um, but I think there's still some you know, some great deals out there and probably will be for another, you know, four to six weeks. Uh, but then when as the Delta variant subsides, I, I imagine we'll see airfares continue to climb again. You know, you probably were in a unique position, not unique, but you were perfectly positioned because as a leisure carrier, you didn't have to depend on business travel as much as other airlines. That's right. That's right. Look, we, we have the lowest cost in the business and, and we make money with leisure fares. And, and our whole airline is set up to carry leisure travel. I mean, you know, our average frequency is only four to five times per week. Um, that's simply because, you know, you, you know, leisure people don't need five times a day. They know when they're going to go. They know when they're going to come back. Uh, but the truth is, is they, they're very cost conscious, not unlike the business travelers. And so in order to make money in this end of the business, you got to have you got to have cheap costs. And that enables, enables you to sell cheap fares. So here's my other stupid question. As a leisure carrier, I'm assuming the two days of the week you'd, you'd rather not be in the calendar would be Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> Tuesday and Wednesday are tough. Uh, and depending upon the time of year, Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday. Uh, and the pandemic has, has even exacerbated this. It's e even more. Uh, you really see the demand on Thursday, Friday, Sunday, Monday. That, that's where the peak demand is. So if you could just schedule the entire airline as a four-day-a-week airline, you'd be very happy. Yeah, it'd be great. The problem is, is that, uh, yeah, you know, you don't, people, that's not a great work schedule, <laughs> right? So, uh, it, yeah, look, I mean, you pull down the flying, you manage it that way. Uh, but uh, those are always going to be, unless you change the work week, uh, that's always going to be the peak days. And now let's talk about international because you're doing a lot of stuff in Central America now, a lot of stuff in I mean, thinking about South America, uh, and of course the Caribbean, right? When you open those routes in the middle of a pandemic, there are other factors involved. 
Well, look, we were already interested in, in growing in, in, in international. In fact, when all this started last March, I was actually in a, in a series of meetings in Miami with various uh, islands from the Caribbean. Um, and so we really, we'd already planned on doing this. And we decided that, that look, people, people want to go to the Caribbean as much as, as ever. Um, many of these places have been shut down. And so you have people that go every year or every other year. And we think the pinup demand there will be big uh, by the time we get to this winter. So we started service to St. Martin, St. Thomas, uh, Turks and Caicos, Nassau, Antigua starts this fall. Uh, we're going to Costa Rica in Liberia as well as San Jose, uh, Guatemala, and Salvador. So big, big list of new places in, in the region. And flying from where? Flying from Orlando, Miami, some of the services coming from Atlanta, Newark, uh, even Belize uh, from here, as well as Orlando. Is there a route that you started over the last five years that you thought was going to be the best thing to happen since sliced bread and you pulled out? And conversely, is there a route they had to drag you kicking and screaming into starting that turned out to be your biggest surprise? You know what? I, I, I grew up in route planning, so... Um, I'm not surprised at what works, and I'm and I'm not and I'm not surprised at what doesn't work. You know, we just run off the averages, and so, you know, we we start a lot of routes, and and yeah, we'll cancel a lot of routes. But overall, our hit rate stays in the 70 or 80 percent. Um, there's some that you're surprised, yes, like how what? well. Like what? So I find it interesting. Like just take this year, you know, Anchorage, Alaska, was so-so for the company when we did it before, and it's been off the charts. And, and I think what's interesting is that just this work from home and this extended staying in places. I mean, I was up in Montana just this last week, and I'm just shocked all these people that are living there for months on end, you know, oh, yeah, I'm going to go back to California at some point. And so I just wonder how much of that keeps going because it is changing the complexion of where people go. Sure, they're going back to Vegas and Orlando, uh, but you're seeing them go, especially even to, you know, call it Myrtle Beach in the off season. You're seeing so some, they're not just going to visit; they're going to live. They're staying for much longer, much longer. Um, you know, we we would have a three and a half, four day average stay going into this, and we're we're pushing seven to ten days depending upon the route. And you never, and you longer. never anticipated that. No, not at all. Um, but look, I mean, Airbnb is enab enabling it as well. So you have all different products out there on the ground side that are actually enabling it, enabling it as well. And of course, the, the example I like to use is Bozeman, because everybody other than, I don't have an airline, but if I did, I'd probably announce I was going to Bozeman. Everybody's going to Bozeman, right? They, everybody likes to go to Bozeman. Um, I, I, think, I think the challenge is with some of these markets traditionally, though, is you'll have a great summer, right? It'll be great the last week of June through, through mid-August, and then it just goes to hell. A Tuesday in September, nobody wants to go. And then maybe you have a short, you know, Christmas and, and ski season, but, you know, we've got to pay for the plane year-round. And so we look for markets that'll do well on a Tuesday in September for the summer season, or they'll do well on a Tuesday in February. And so what's happening is these are, these are lengthening the, the, the seasons for some of these places that are more of a struggling, you know, year-round destination before, which is great for our business. My thanks to Barry. While in Denver, I stopped by to talk with Mayor Michael Hancock for an update from the Mile High City, how they're handling COVID, travel, and tourism, and of course, one of America's busiest airports, Denver International. 
I always love coming back to Denver. I've been coming here since the early 70s when I did a cover story for Newsweek magazine on a very famous football player for the Broncos named Floyd Little. I've been coming back ever since, and I'm honored to be joined today by the mayor of Denver, Michael Hancock. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Welcome to Denver. And may I say, in the interest of full disclosure, not every mayor can claim to be the former mascot of the Broncos. <laughs> no, no, no. From mascot to mayor, that's my story. Do you still have the uniform? No, I don't still have the uniform, man. <laughs> Well, let's get serious for a second because we're a situation where travel is such a big story. It is the number one industry in the world with, you know, one out of every 10 new jobs and, and, and employing 62 million people around the world whose jobs were at risk over the last 18 months. Give me an update on the situation here in Denver. Well, Denver is certainly improving. Um, our tourism de- uh, sector is our number one industry, uh, economic industry in Denver. Obviously, we bank on conventions. We bank on tourism. Uh, and tourists coming to our town, enjoying downtown Denver, enjoying all of Denver, quite frankly. Uh, and certainly, people passing through enjoying the mountains as well. So it's our number one sector here in Denver and throughout the state of Colorado. Pandemic hit it hard, but we're coming back. We are seeing 70% occupancies, uh, occupancy rates in our in our hotels. Driven I, by leisure travel. Driven by leisure travel. It's not business travel, obviously. I know people want to get out. But I think the fact that Denverites are 70% plus vaccinated really show the rest of the country that this is a safe place you want to come. We hope that you're vaccinated. If not, you're certainly exercising good safe practices while you're here. And wearing a wearing mask and social distancing, but you know people are coming. They love our outdoors. Uh, we, they love the fact that you can come to Denver and not be overwhelmed with heat and humidity. Well, the subtext about Denver is you can come and breathe. You can breathe here. Yeah, the, the, the you can breathe, but you all you know you're not going to be suffocated by humidity, and that's the that's the beauty. But it's a great place to visit as well. So we have bounced back well. Our airport has bounced back well. It's one of the busiest airports in the country today. Oh, I saw that and last night. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm really excited about uh, what's happened this summer. Hopefully, we can we can carry some of that over into the fall and winter. You you, know, you see other cities right now with the Delta variant coming back and the, and the spike in the number of cases where you're seeing both the public and the private sector institute new rules, right? You have restaurants in Seattle saying, if you want to come eat here, you have to show us proof of vaccination. If you want to eat inside or outside, we're seeing that in San Francisco. We're seeing that in New Orleans. What's the situation with that in Denver? We're seeing some of that here as well. Um, you know, we institute in Denver uh, a public health order that, you know, if you're working in high risk or high volume areas, you have to be vaccinated, mandatory vaccination by September 30th. We saw some private sector uh, companies follow, including restaurants, and uh, to do the same or at least saying to their patrons, we want you vaccinated if you're coming into our facilities. I mean, the overwhelming response that I'm getting from consumers is they will feel it's comfort level. Mm-hmm. They want to go someplace where they know everybody else is vaccinated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we as a public, uh, at least government, have done everything we can to help restaurants open up their patios, expand it to sidewalks, into the street in some cases. Uh, so we, they've done everything. And I tell you, we want to talk about industry that was hit and devastated during the pandemic, the restaurant industry, the entertainment industry. Um, you know, these employees sit at home and they're trying to get back to work and they want to get back to the places that they love to work at. And you know what? The only way you can do that is by making sure, or at least sustain it, is by making sure people are vaccinated. And you know, we're we're we're, uh, we're seeing this in the hotel industry. You mentioned seventy percent occupancy. That doesn't necessarily mean the hotels are up to seventy percent staff. Absolutely. And they're there's not, a big problem. There. They're not. They're every industry I know is working on or struggling with getting people uh, employees on. And how do you get them back? You know, I think one thing's going to happen is uh, we're starting to see a little bit of it now. I mean, as you've seen in recent reports, some of the lowest unemployment numbers uh, since the pandemic started. Um, But we are seeing that I think as people get closer and start seeing the end of the unemployment benefits, uh, which I believe the end of September they run out. You always have an intersection of the unemployment benefits ending, kids going back to school. Absolutely. People have to go back. People got to go back. So kids will go back to school. But I think you're going to start seeing the the able-bodied working 
adult getting back into the the workforce and uh, that's going to be very important i'll bet i think it's going to be a little different i think uh, we're going to see some hybrids where hybrids can be allowed um people, can i, I, can I make a prediction yeah can i make a prediction yeah i'm seeing this at least thought about around the country we may be going to a four-day work week I'm okay with that. <laughs> Who would argue with that? You know, come on, man, for any week. But you know what? It, it's, I, I think there's going to be a day. I think people had time to reflect and spend time with family and priorities are, are shifting. And people are like, you know, listen, we found the value. We also lost a lot of loved ones during this time. And you begin to rearrange your priorities and you find different values during this time. And so as Americans, then let's figure out what that is and let's get to it. Let's remain productive, but let's get to it. One of the other things I've noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed it well, so many Americans, you said reflection, they were reflecting on where they were living and where they wanted to live or where they wanted to go. A lot of people moving. Yeah, a lot of people moving. We saw a lot of folks moving to Colorado and into Denver in particular uh, before and during the pandemic. Uh, our last 20, 10 years, we grew by 30% here in Denver, Colorado. But the pandemic, people were moving from that was the coastal catalyst. areas. Yeah, I mean, people were moving from the pan, from the coastal areas, and Denver was one of their destinations, you know. And um, you know, we see it in our housing prices, we see it in our rental prices uh, in the city. They're going up. They they have skyrocketed. Well, let me shift gears to um, one of my favorite topics, the airport, because I go back to the days of Wellington Webb yeah. when he and I were actually walking the old runways there as they were building them, the runways that started to sink, the baggage machines that ate the bags. We remember <laughs> all those stories. And Denver's turned into a pretty good airport. It's one of the busiest airports in the country. Matter of fact, it was the busiest airport during the pandemic, I will tell you that. And I think it's because of the vast sector-leading domestic network that we have. People were, dry, were traveling domestically for leisure primarily during the pandemic getting to places where they do or felt it was safe, beaches or mountains, mostly mountains for that matter. And Denver was the place that they were either connecting to or coming to as their main destination. We are proud of it and we're proud of our airport. You know, we are already ahead of the trends for 2021. We are about 50% of our normal capacity at the airport, which is well ahead of what other, most airports, if not all airports in the country are doing. We saw almost 25 million people during the half part of 2021. And so we are climbing right back to where we were and and we're proud of that. We're proud of the airport. It's going through a major renovation at about 26 years old right now. You know, it's hard to believe, and I, I tell this to my friends all the time, the last major new airport in America was Denver, and it's already almost 26 years old. It's 26 years old, yeah. It, it's gone by very quickly. We all remember the first day that we saw that plane take off from Stapleton and land at Denver National Airport. Probably and by the way, minutes. the bags from that plane just arrived. <laughs> <laughs> They're still looking for most of them, Peter. Yeah, that was a special moment. We all remember that uh, poor Wellington Webb, and I can tell you sitting in that mayor's office now, there's nothing like that sort of situation to kind of take your every minute of your day. Oh, yeah. How do we figure this out? Nothing more frustrating than I want to fix it. I want to fix it and realize it's not in your hands. You know, I remember Stapleton, of course. Mm -hmm. I miss it only because it was closer to the city. Right. But the bottom line is when, the, when an airport works, you know it. And when right. an airport doesn't, you know it. Right. And this airport works. Absolutely. We could never do the things we're doing today at Stapleton. Um, Denver National Airport has allowed us to secure 16 international direct connections. We could not do that at Stapleton. You can't fly a, fl a plane coming out of Japan into Stapleton. We just simply didn't have the boost and we didn't have the ability for it to land like it has to land. Denver National Airport has a, gives us the ability to do that. Today we have six runways at Denver National Airport. We can grow to 12. And so here we come rest of the world. Denver's coming. <laughs> Those runways are going to help us do it. Well, when you talk about the renovation, will that be new runways? Yeah, we uh, we are already planning the seventh runway
runway, maybe the eighth runway, the new CEO, Phil Washington says, why are we doing just one? We should be doing two. Uh, so we'll look at it. As you know, runways are awfully expensive. They are a lot more expensive than building your driveway. Um, you just um, noticed that? Hey, man, I'm telling you. When I heard the price tag, I'm like, I'm in the wrong business. We're, I should be in sand and water right now, you and me. Uh, <laughs> they're about a billion dollars a runway uh, and growing, uh, increasing in cost. So, But anyway, yeah, we, we, we're going to grow. We're going to get to those that 12th runway and continue to grow our international connectivity. Of course, during the pandemic, that's when the airlines started rethinking everything mm-hmm. about where people wanted to go, leisure right. travel being the, the driver. Right. And they're looking at ser- secondary and tertiary cities. Right. right. My example I love to use is Bozeman, Montana. Yes. Every airline woke up one morning and said, we're going to Bozeman. Right. And all of a sudden, about six months ago, the runway at Bozeman, Montana was one guy named Vern. <laughs> you know? And all of a sudden, you're flooding that market with 200,000 right. seats a month. There aren't even 200 hotel rooms. Right. I mean, so you have to manage your growth as well. Yeah, you do. You have to manage your growth and you also have to recognize or at least follow the puck, right? I mean, uh, the reality is is that places like Bozeman, Montana are growing. Idaho's growing. They're like the two fastest growing uh, communities in the country right now, our states in the country right now. So you have to know where people are trying to go. And to your point, people are trying to be outdoors. That's why Denver, Colorado still does so well. Well-known outdoor Well, locations. you're the gateway to the outdoors. You're gateway to outdoors and, and the Rocky Mountains where Bozeman and I, Idaho and other places sit. But the reality is, is that people are looking for different types of leisure opportunities. And we got to recognize that. And I'm glad our airlines, at least the three major dominant airlines in Denver, United, Southwest, and Frontier, recognize that. And they're making creativity. And by the way, the two out of those three airlines have made a rule that their employees all have to be vaccinated. Yes. And we're pleased with that. Um, you know, I, they followed uh, uh, Denver. I remember communicating with a couple of the airlines. I mean, they didn't follow because we did it, but their, their announcements followed ours. Um, talking to a couple of airline executives after we made our announcement and they indicated to me that they were on their way into doing the same thing. And so we kind of, uh, it worked very well in tandem to kind of, you know, give each other um, encouragement that this is the right direction that we should be going. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to take your mayor's hat off for a second and put on your traveler's hat for a mm-hmm. second. The, the real danger here is that so many companies in the wake of the pandemic might be using the pandemic as an excuse for cutting back on service. You know, all of a sudden, housekeeping in hotels is <laughs> optional. Yeah, Excuse seen, me? Seen, yeah. Right? All of a sudden, uh, there are surcharges on, on rooms that you could never imagine for electricity. Mm-hmm. I mean, things that are coming out of left field, right? The, the famous resort fees uh, in, in, in city hotels, that I always can't understand. But what are you seeing as a traveler? Uh, and what kind of complaints are you getting in your office from people who want to get out there and travel, but all of a sudden, wait a minute, I have to pay for this? Yeah. Or this doesn't exist anymore? Right. You're going to laugh. But my biggest battle right now is, why do we get on an airplane to fly? We're not there for the rich Corinthian weather. We're not there for the Broadway show tunes the flight attendants are not performing on board. We're there to go from A to B and not die. That's what we're doing, right? right. Okay. Right. So, but we do value at least one thing on a flight every once in a while. So if you're, if you're going on the Transcon flight between LA and New York, you're valuing the ice cream, if you happen to be a friend. That's all you're thinking about. On the way to the airport, you're thinking about that ice cream. You know, ice cream? <laughs> Where you get ice cream? I've never gotten ice cream on a flight. Flight? You got to talk to me. What airline you? You got to talk to me. <laughs> but but wait, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go back to another flight that you have been on. Yeah. Right. Where they serve those little Biscoff cookies. Yes. Okay. Good. I love those. Guess what? Now after the pandemic, one airline is coming. They used to serve them to you like two in a pack. Yeah. Right. Now Americans coming back and serving to you in one pack. Wow. And it's smaller. Come on. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> My thanks to Mayor Hancock, to Barry Biffle, and to Trevor Durling. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, just log on to petergreenberg.com.
Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.